So we are in a series just sort of beginning that is attempting to set out the 40 biggest ideas, the 40 most foundational truths around which uh, the life of a Christ follower should be based. It's called planted because I'm not necessarily trying to persuade any of you to believe. I am assuming that you do. And the goal is to figure out how do you put your roots down into the rich soil of Scripture and, and Christ and the gospel. So this is a, a series in which I am, I am trying to, to set up the, the foundations and the, and the guardrails, if you will, uh, within which we need to operate. Now, it's uh, not popular today to have guardrails. We celebrate our freedom. We want to be free to believe whatever we want to believe. And, and indeed, one of the great privileges of being in this country is that we do have freedom of religion. We can believe whatever we want to believe. That's a great blessing. But just because we can believe whatever we want to believe doesn't mean that whatever we believe is true. Uh, all people have value. Not all ideas have value. And so the Christian faith is a particular thing. And so we're trying to look at those, again, foundational, pivotal, introductory, life-changing worldview kind of thoughts. And uh, last week we looked at who is God, and today we're looking at who is Jesus. And uh, I, I, my hope, my prayer has been that you would get a bigger picture of Jesus you would have a bigger understanding of who he is. Because a bigger understanding, a better understanding, a more accurate understanding of Jesus brings all kinds of value. <laughs> it brings a sense of security. It brings a sense of hope. It brings a sense of peace. And so the, the goal is to help you understand what the Bible says about Jesus. Often when I talk about Jesus, I go on this little rift and I say, look, Jesus is the most significant person that ever lived. Right? There's 60 billion, and then I just sort of parade these, these, this litany of facts about the fact that, you know, that he's the one that gave us the ideas that, that, that have shaped Western civilization, and more books have been written about him, and that he gives us the greatest ethical system, and, and that there are two billion people following him, and millions of people that have lost their lives for him and are ready to do so again today. So, so usually I start and I say, Jesus is the most significant person who ever lived. He claimed to be God. you got to focus on that. It's not like some insignificant person claimed to be God. Jesus claims to be God. He's the most significant person that ever lived. You've got to deal with that. Today, in this series, we're going in a different direction. I want, you to, I want you to wrestle with the 10 big claims that are found in Scripture. There are many more than 10, but, but I want you to think about 10 of the bigger ideas about Christ. For instance, number one. He is God. The claim is that Jesus is fully God. God himself. Equal with God the Father. The claim is that Jesus is eternal. Your life began at conception. My life began at conception. Christ's life never began because it was, goes back from eternity past. There was never a moment that Jesus wasn't God. He was in the very beginning. And indeed... One of the other claims that's made about Jesus is that everything that you see was created by him. So Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and everything that has been created was created through him. Nothing that was created was created in any other way. There's only two, really, there's only two categories for everything that exists. There's God, and there's everything that God created. (laughs) Those are the only two categories. So, if you're not God, then you were created, in a sense, by Jesus. Jesus is fully God. He's not, he's not slightly less than God. He's not the vice president of God. He's, he's, he's not God with a small g. He's every bit equal with God the Father. So the, the first creed that the church gets, called the Apostles' Creed, what was set out so that those who wanted to join the church, who wanted to become uh, baptized, could say, this is what you have to believe. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Right? The, that was the Apostles' Creed, not written by the apostles. It comes later than that. But, but it, was a, it was a summary of the apostolic faith. After that, all of the creeds that, that come along are our efforts to block ideas that are not part of the Apostles' Creed, that are not part of the central faith. And the first, the first new creed in that category was called the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed was essentially set up to stop those who said, Jesus is ever so slightly not completely God. And the, the Nicene Creed says, no, <laughs> he is fully God. Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is one of us. Jesus is man. So, Jesus was God, just God, in heaven from eternity past. But at at the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus adds humanity to deity. While remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. It's not that he's half God and half man. It's not that he's God some of the time and man some of the time. It's not that he's God on the inside and man on the outside. It's that he is 100% God and 100% man. And still is. Today, in heaven, God is fully God. Excuse me, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Heaven is a real physical place. Jesus rose physically from the dead. He will remain fully God and fully man for all of eternity. The second creed that was established, it's really sort of just an add-on to the Nicene Creed called the Chalcedonian Definition, was, was set up to stop those who said, Jesus is God, but he wasn't completely one of us. So there was some pollution of Greek thinking, Plato and others that, didn't, that said the physical world wasn't good. So there was a bunch of people that said Jesus was, was God, but he only looked like a person. He couldn't actually have a real physical body. No, the claim is that he's fully one of us, like us in every way except sin. Number three, <clears throat> the third thing that we say about Jesus is that he is the missing piece of the puzzle. So you might understand that in order to really understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament, right? It sets up the New Testament. But what you may not fully appreciate is that in order to really understand the Old Testament, (laughs) you have to read the New Testament. 
because, because Jesus is the answer to so many other questions. Jesus is the one that, that so many things point to. For instance, Jesus is the new and better Adam. The first Adam fails. And, and because of his failure, the world falls and we inherit a broken nature. Jesus, according to Paul, Romans, is the second Adam. He doesn't fail. He gets it right. And we can get his righteousness credited to us. Jesus is the new and better Abraham. Abraham left the land of his father. He goes on this journey to establish the people of God. Jesus is, leaves his father. And he comes into the void to establish the people of God. Jesus is the new and better Isaac. Right? The first Isaac was offered as a sacrifice. Jesus was not just offered. He was sacrificed on the same mountain for our sins. Jesus is the new and better Joseph. Joseph leaves his land. He's sold. He's betrayed. And, he's, and he's, he finds himself in slavery he suffers, but then he rises to the right hand of power. And he uses his power to save the very people who betrayed him. Jesus is the new and better Joseph, right? Who rises to the right hand of power and uses that power to forgive people and to save them. Jesus is the new and better temple, right? The temple was the, the intersection of God and man on earth. It's the place you went for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is God and man intersecting in, on earth. He's the place we go for the forgiveness of sins. I, I could go on. There's so many ways. Jesus is the new and better David, right? Who defeats Goliath while everybody else just stands there and watches but gets to enjoy the victory that he accomplished. Jesus is the missing piece of the puzzle. And not just on the stories, Jesus is the, is the, is the fulfillment of all the promises, all the messianic promises that are made, that start in Genesis 3, that God is going to send a rescuer. All of these references to a Messiah, the word is, in the Greek is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a title. It means Jesus the Messiah, right? Conan the Barbarian, Jesus the Messiah. That's what we're saying when we say Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Christ promises that we find in the Old Testament. Number four. Jesus is the smartest person to ever live. Okay, so most people will concede that Jesus was one of the best people to ever live. He was the nicest. He was the kindest. He was perhaps the, maybe people will say that he was the wisest, right? Because wisdom is sort of a, a, a right living, uh, you know, understanding what life means and character and morality. So people might say that Jesus is the wisest person. I'm going one past that and saying, no. Jesus is the smartest person that ever lived. Jesus knows more about banking than Jamie Dimon. Jesus knows more about electric cars than Elon Musk. Jesus knows more about football than Bill Belichick. Jesus knows more about you than you. Jesus is the smartest person to ever live. Number five, Jesus is the master of humility. In spite of all the things that Jesus is, all the things that he has, Jesus is going to show up as a servant. Now, I want to be clear because not everybody, uh, not everybody actually takes the time to read the New Testament. I was speaking with a man this week who said, I follow the Bible. 
I try and obey the Bible. And he says, now, I don't actually read it, so I don't know what's in it, but I follow it. Okay. You might be surprised if you actually read the New Testament to see that Jesus makes very audacious claims. He claims to be God. He makes the biggest claims possible. So he's not humble in that sense. (laughs) He's humble in his life. He shows up and he serves. And, and, And it's remarkable when you realize who he is, where he goes. You might say, I went to an Ivy League school, and I, I, I graduated, and then I went to medical school at the University of Chicago, and then I did my residency at Stanford. And Jesus could say, I created life, and I defeated death. <laughs> well, I, I graduated number one in my class at Harvard Law School. Jesus says, the Ten Commandments were, not, were my idea. All of law is based around them, and they come out of my character. I, I, uh, I won the Heisman Trophy. I can walk on water, right? I mean, it is, <laughs> it, it's, it's not close. There's, there's, there's a thousand ways that we can say Jesus is 10 million times more impressive than anyone else. He is God, and yet, Paul writes in Philippians 2, this, he, he quotes this, one of the earliest hymns. And yet, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be clutched, something to be held on to. He emptied himself. He becomes one of us. And not just one of us, but a slave. And not just a slave, but a slave that goes to his death. And not just death, but death on a cross. (laughs) Paul will also say that he becomes sin in our behalf. It doesn't say he takes on our sin, although that's certainly the point, but it's almost like it's worse than that. I mean, nobody starts higher, and yet nobody goes lower than Jesus. He is the master of humility. There's a, there's a strong argument to be made, came out about 10 years ago by some ancient historians that said, before Jesus, humility was a bad thing. Being strong was what everybody wanted to be. The Greeks were all about honor. It was all about power. And then Jesus changes that, not, they said, because of his teaching as much as because of his life. Jesus is the master of humility. Number six, Jesus is our example. That's actually what the Philippians 2.5 passage sets up. And if you haven't memorized Philippians 2.5 through 11, shame on you. You need to. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is this, high, this highest of all Christology passages. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, it's, it's that one. But if you memorize Philippians 2, 2, 4, it says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this remarkable passage that talks about who Christ is and his humility is there as a statement to say, follow his example and be humble yourself. Now, when we talk about Jesus being our example, some people get nervous because they say, you're saying he should be our example, but he's more than that. Absolutely. Some people who are saying Jesus is our example are saying he's not God, he's not anything other than an example, he's just a great moral example. I'm not saying that. Some people get nervous when you say Jesus is our example because they go, well, there's things that Jesus did that we don't have to do, like die on the cross. I, I agree, I agree. But... Let's not miss the obvious here, right? 
Jesus is the perfect person. If you want to know how to live, you can learn a whole lot by looking at Jesus. He is our example. We should all seek, as Christ did, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live in submission to God the Father, and to look for ways to serve and care for others. Number seven, Jesus is a friend of the poor, the, uh, the, a friend of the poor and the ostracized and the oppressed. Remarkably, Jesus, for all the things that he has going for him, spends his time <laughs> with the have-nots. Just as, on a consistent basis, he spends his time with those others push away. <clears throat> I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Jesus is the only person that gets to pick his parents. Right? And he picked Mary, remarkable, courageous, wise beyond her years, right? So much going for Mary. He picks Mary, who is poor. And then he gets to pick his key leaders, his key followers, and he picks this group of misfits that others didn't want to, didn't want to touch. And then as a rabbi, Jesus sort of consistently hangs out with with the tax collectors and the lepers and the Samaritans and the prostitutes. Right? He loves these people, he cares for these people, he parties with these people. It's scandalous. Jesus is a scandal to the religious leader because of who he, hung, who he hangs out with. Number eight, Jesus is our future judge. So one of the ways that Jesus really got the religious leaders of his day mad is by his use of the term son of man. It, it is the, the most, it is, it is the way he refers to himself the most often. I am the son of man. It sounds like a more humble version of son of God, except it's not. If you read the Son of Man, you go back to the reference in Daniel chapter 7. What you see is the Son of Man is the one who, who is elevated by the Ancient of Days, God the Father. The Son of Man is the one who is given all power and authority over everything. Judge over everyone. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess glory to the Son of Man. So Jesus keeps saying he's the Son of Man. And the religious leaders just go apoplectic every time he says it. He is claiming to be your judge. Now, judgment is not a popular idea today, but Jesus talks a lot about judgment. He talks a lot about accountability. He talks a lot about hell. Jesus is going to be our judge. Now, that's scary news, except at the same time that he's our judge, <laughs> he's our defense attorney. This sounds very much like a Chicago story. <laughs> Jesus is our judge, and he is our advocate. He is our high priest. A priest is one who represents people to God. Jesus is our representative. Even now, we're told, he continues to represent us, to plead our case. And here's the reason that this isn't really a Chicago story. There's no corruption that goes on here. And that's because of number nine. <clears throat> Jesus is our sacrifice. It would be something 
if the judge and the defense attorney were the same person and guilty people got to go free, but that's not exactly the way it works. Jesus pays our debt, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of our moral obligation, of our sin. If you read through the, the Bible, you read through the Old Testament, you see that the blood flows frequently. It starts early and it flows often. Blood is the currency of life. Blood is, blood is sort of, in God's economy, it's, it's the money. And, and the setup is, sin is a capital offense. We deserve to die. But guilty people can go free if innocent people will die in their place. And the way we talk about this is blood. And so there's this whole sacrificial system in which blood is being shed, life is being given, so that guilty people can go free. Jesus is the one who pays our debt. He is the sacrifice. Now, there's a whole lot more, but I don't have any time. And again, as I said with God the Father, eternity is not long enough to cover all the things that we know about Jesus. Right? If we just step back, wow, the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. That's what, that's what was read at the beginning of the service, right? That, that Jesus is better than everyone else. Jesus talks about himself as the bread of life and the light of the world and the way and the truth and the life. The book of Revelation talks about Jesus as the, as the groom who's, who's going to be married to his bride, which is the church, and there will be a great celebration in heaven. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the, he is the, the Lamb who was defeated but then is conquering, has come back from the dead. It would, be, it would be tragic if I didn't point out that Jesus is Lord, right? He is master over everyone. Last week, I mentioned that God is, is one of the characteristics of God is that he's wild. I got some email on that one. But I stand by it. God is, to quote C.S. Lewis, not a tame God. Aslan is not a tame lion, right? And we see this with Jesus. Jesus does shocking things. He is not domesticated, right? He is not beholden to us. He can be disruptive. He can be a little surprising. Faithful always, but, but not a tame lion, to quote Lewis in the Chronicles. Jesus is many things. The titles go on. Firstborn from the dead, he is the coming king. He is our kinsman redeemer. He's the tower of our salvation. He's the lily of the valley. He's the prince of peace. He's the rock of ages, right? There's all kinds of titles of Jesus. I have one left, and so I'm going to say number 10. Jesus is our savior. We are not saved by good advice, right? There's good advice in the Bible. There's good advice from Jesus. But we're not saved by good advice. We are saved by a rescuer. We are saved by the love and the action of God. And so Jesus is that one. He is our rescuer. Now, my hope is that you are committed to a bigger view of Jesus a more accurate view of Jesus. Because he's not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. He's looking for disciples. But when you see Jesus for who he is, there's only two responses that make any sense. (laughs) There's only two things that you're going to do. One is you're going to worship. And the second is you're going to obey. Right? I mean, when we see Jesus, right, those are the responses. 
We're not thinking of other things. We're thinking worship. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's amazing. He's the creator of everything. He's my savior. He's the sacrifice, right? He's all these things. So there's no response other than to marvel, to be in awe, to worship, and to want to obey. And so part of growing, part of being planted, part of putting our roots down is getting to understand and know who Jesus is. Let me pray. Lord God Almighty, uh, we thank you for your glorious son, Lord Jesus Christ. We are in awe of you. You are king, you are Lord, you are beautiful, you are savior, you are so many things. We thank you and we praise you and we pray for a greater understanding of who you are that would shape our lives, shape our heart, shape everything about us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.